Let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are uh, a gracious and compassionate God. A God who, uh, as we've seen throughout this series, a God who has done great things to save us, uh, to, to make us a part of something greater. A God who gave up everything, uh, as we saw in chapter 2 of this series, a God who gave everything up and humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and, and now sits as king. Uh, thank you, God, for what you've done. We pray as we think about this, we pray as we see this, uh, that you would help it to change and affect our lives in the way we think, in the way we feel, and in the way we behave. We pray that uh, this would happen, and we pray for your help in this. We pray that this morning you would help us to see your word clearly, that we would feel challenged by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that that would be uh, the thing that drives our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's always more to a story uh, than you think, than, than what meets the eye. There's always more going on to a, uh, in a story. Now, I was reading about this this week, and the reason I was reading about this, uh, a, a guy who experienced this, is because he was trying to explain this idea of a paradigm shift. Right? So he was explaining this story, and, and, and what, why he was telling that story was because he was trying to explain a paradigm shift. Now, a paradigm shift, if you don't know what that means, uh, that's okay, because I didn't either uh, before this, but, but a paradigm shift is simply what happens when you see something differently, and because you see something differently, it changes the way you feel, the way you think, and the way you behave. And so this guy was telling this story about how all of a sudden he saw that there was a, a, saw a situation where he finally saw that there was something more going on. And so he was telling this story about how he was on a train. Now, the train was peaceful and quiet. I don't know if you've ever been in that experience where you've been on a train where it's been peaceful and quiet. You know, the kind of train rides, like, it doesn't happen that much, but sometimes it does. You know, the kind of uh, carriages, the kind of trains uh, where, you know, everyone's reading their own sort of, uh, their own books, they're reading, they're doing their own thing, they're not reading the newspapers that are too big, they're doing their own thing, uh, no one's being disruptive, there's no kids on board that carriage, it's, it's nice, it's quiet. And peaceful. And he was telling this story how it was great. Now, I understand that for extroverts here this morning, that, that, that doesn't sound like a good thing. That sounds like a horrible thing. But just imagine for a second that this is a good, a nice and good, peaceful, quiet train. Right. Anyway, he was saying he was on this train and all of a sudden as the train, you know, as, as it goes from stop to stop, all of a sudden went to this next stop and the unthinkable happened. A dad came on the train with his kids Right, you can almost imagine, like you can always see everyone's heads drop when that happens. But the dad came on with his kids, and the kids were going crazy. And the dad was just sitting there doing nothing about it. The kids were going crazy, you know, the running up and down the aisle, the bumping into you, uh, kind of like the hanging off the, you know, with the tr the train kind of handles thing, practicing their Olympics routine. They, they were going crazy, and the dad was just sitting there doing nothing about it. Now, what would you do in that situation, right? Seeing this happen, your peace and quiet has been disrupted. The one chance you get has been disrupted. What would you do in that moment that the dad's doing nothing, the kids are going crazy? What would you do? I feel like I would be pretty annoyed at that moment. This guy telling the story was pretty annoyed at that moment. And as he's looking around, seeing the fact that everyone on the train has been, you know, uh, is disrupted, is frustrated, annoyed at these kids, decides, okay, I'm going to go over and talk to this dad. And so he goes over to this dad and he says, excuse me, uh, excuse me, sir, your kids are disrupting everyone on the train. I wonder if you could control your kids. 
I wonder if you can control your kids. Now, now that kind of said, I feel like he did a pretty good job in that. I feel like me in that moment, if I was going to say anything, would be far worse than that. I feel like he did a pretty good job. But he said, he described it, that the way this dad response caused him to have this paradigm shift, right? The way the dad spoke in, in response to him caused him to think differently, to feel differently, and to behave differently. And so what did the dad say? Well, well the dad said to him, as he said this, the dad said, you know what? I should control my kids. I should control my kids, but we've just come from the hospital about an hour ago where their mother died, and I guess they're struggling to deal with it, and I am too. Now, now how would you feel in that moment? Right? What would you be thinking in that moment? You, you would totally think differently, right? You'd totally feel differently. You'd totally then act differently. And this is what the guy said, right? This is what the guy said. He said, can you imagine what I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted, he said. My paradigm shifted. And this is key to what he means here. He said, suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, and I behaved differently. Because I saw things differently... I felt different, uh, I thought different, and I behaved different. It's a, what, what he describes as a mini paradigm shift, right? It's this shift where because of what you see, it changes the way you think and the way you feel and the way you behave. Now, now this series in Philippians, we've been looking at this idea that we are a part of something greater, Right Over and over again, we've been seeing that we are a part of something great, that there is something more going on than what's in front of us. And that something greater is, is these gospel realities that we've seen, these realities about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we, we've seen this, right? Time and time again, we saw how uh, Jesus had everything and yet he gave it up, became nothing, died on a cross so that we, he could save us. We saw the realities last week of heaven and hell, that if we don't trust in Jesus, our end is destruction we get exactly what we deserve we've been seeing these realities that to live is Christ and to die is gain these are gospel realities this is something greater but the question is or the thing that we're thinking about today is as we see this something greater Right, as we see that Jesus is greater, that the, the Jesus is the King of Kings who one day every knee will bow, as we see this something greater, the question is for us today, how is this going to change how we think, how we feel, and how we behave? It's a gospel paradigm shift. Right, right. And how does this paradigm shift, this gospel paradigm shift, where we see something differently, how is it going to change the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I behave? Well, if you've got your Bibles there today, what we're going to see is in chapter 4, as we finish up this book, Paul shows us how, when we see the gospel, when we see Jesus, how it's going to change the way we think and feel and behave. Now, it's worthwhile remembering at this point that chapter 4 here comes on the back of what we've already seen in this series. Series, right. In fact, early on when this letter was first given out, they would have read this letter together. And so they wouldn't have done what we do, you know, splitting it up into six things. No, no, this came at the end of that. And so we've got to remember that this is on the back of all the stuff we've seen, especially last week, the reality of heaven and hell. And Paul now tells us how it's going to change the way we think and feel and behave. And what Paul's going to show us today is that it's actually going to change the way we think, feel and behave in seven ways. In seven ways. So, so let's get into the seven things. What's the first one? Well, we see it in chapter 4, verse 2. The first one, the first way that it changes us 
is uh, we are actually united. We are united. That's the first one. So have a look in your Bibles there. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is what Paul says. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first way that we are changed, that our paradigm shifts and we think, feel, act differently, it is in that we are united. We are united. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this already in the book of Philippians. We saw it in chapter 2. I don't know if you remember that, but Paul said in chapter 2, he said, count others better than yourselves. He said, don't think of your own interests, but also the interests of others. So unity has already been an issue that Paul's talked about before. But here it's a little bit different. Here Paul gets specific. And so he speaks to uh, about a specific situation right between two women. Now, these women were probably leaders of the church who people would look up to. And he says, I urge them to get along. I urge them to agree in the Lord. And he also says, right, he says, I urge them to do this so much so that they actually get a third party involved to help them out. That's what their loyal yoke fellow is there. I don't know the last time you used the words loyal yoke fellow. Uh, uh, This is literally the first time I've ever said them in my life. But, but what the loyal yoke fellow is, is literally just a third party who can help them get a- along. And it would have probably been someone specifically in the church. But whatever it is, right, Paul wants them to get along. Why? Because unity is important. Right. Unity is actually important. Now, if we think about this, there is a difference here. There is a shift that takes place because in normal life, unity is not really that important. Right. We can not get along with people and that's okay. We can disagree. We can be disunited uh, with people and that's okay. If we don't enjoy, if we don't get along with someone, we just don't. We just try and make sure that our lines don't cross. Our paths don't cross. But Paul's actually saying there's something different here with Christians. As we see the gospel, the great news about Jesus who died and rose again, as we see the the realities of heaven and hell, as we see these things that are greater, then there's actually a shift that takes place. When we realize that Jesus saved me, not because I'm great, but because I'm sinful and broken and couldn't save myself, there is a shift that takes place here. And we're no longer okay with disunity, but actually we're pursuing unity. We're pursuing unity. You see how that shift works? It's a paradigm shift. It's a gospel paradigm shift. And so we are united, right? We, we are united. Unity really matters. And so how does this work? How can we actually be united with each other? Well, Paul says basically two things here, right? To be united. He says two things. He says, firstly, deal with it. Secondly, remember these greater realities, Right, so, so firstly, deal with it. We, we need to remember that as Christians who are holding on to the good news of Jesus. Right, as Christians holding on to the good news of Jesus, disunity is not okay. Right, disunity is not actually okay. It's not something that we're okay with. And so we have to actually deal with our disunity. Right, whether that is, you know, whether we... Um, 
deal with it individually with the other person or whether we actually get a third party involved whatever the case is we actually have to deal with it we can't be okay with disunity we can't be right we're going to spend heaven eternity with these people we can't be okay with disunity so that's the first thing he says right deal with it but the second thing and probably more importantly is he's actually reminding them of, of the greater realities right he's saying that their names are in the books of book of life he's saying we we served with each other and clement in the work of the gospel in the work of the good news of jesus and their names are in the book of life. So he's reminding them of something greater. And so the second thing that we have to remember when thinking about unity is actually we remember that there are greater realities going on, right? We remember the stuff we looked at last week, that there are realities of heaven and hell. And if people don't see the gospel, if people don't see Jesus, they will actually get what they deserve. We have to remember the greater realities that that Jesus died and rose again and now sits as king. We have to remember the greater realities that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, can you see how if we're holding on to these greater realities, it's actually going to help us be united, right? So, So think about it. If this morning we were thinking about the realities of heaven and hell, Right, if this morning before church we got here thinking about the realities of heaven and hell, can you see how that's going to change the way we uh, interact when we're not happy because the style of seating is, you know, it doesn't suit our style of seating, when the music style doesn't suit my style, when there are small disagreements that we have, when different personalities uh, clash with my personalities? Because what happens is, right, the small things stay small and the biggest thing stays the biggest. Because don't we love to make small things into big things? But essentially what Paul's doing here is going, no, no, remember the biggest thing. Remember that there is actually something greater. The realities of heaven and hell, the realities that Jesus died and rose again and sits as king. Right? So so that's the first thing. As we see the gospel, as we see Jesus, the way that it affects us is that we are united. What's the second thing that Paul says? The second thing that Paul says, which we've seen before in this series, is that we rejoice in the Lord uh, always, right? We've seen this always. The second thing that uh, we've seen this before, the second thing in which we are changed is actually that we are joyful. So have a look at verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Uh, So the second way in which we think differently, feel differently, behave differently is actually that we are joyful, that we are joyful. Now, we've seen this idea before in in this series, right? Paul has said it before, the joy is a big deal. We saw how it's kind of the staples that keep the book together. You know what I mean? It's the thing that kind of keeps our faith together. What Paul's saying here is that we should be finding joy in the Lord. Notice he's not asking, right? He's He's not suggesting. It, he's commanding it. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I think the reason why Paul's doing this is not simply to kind of suggest, you know, uh, to kind of say it's the, the staples that keep the book together. I, I think he is doing that. But I think there's another reason Paul's saying rejoice over and over again. I think the reason he says it is because if we don't find joy in what God has done, it might actually suggest that we don't really grasp how good what God has done for us really is. If we don't find joy in what God has done, we may not actually grasp how good what God has done for us really is. It's kind of like that, uh, the the Chinese swimmer. I don't know if you saw that during the Olympics, but the the Chinese swimmer who swam in the 100 uh, meter backstroke final. So so that in itself is an achievement, getting to the 100 meter backstroke uh, final. 
Um, but she swam uh, in, a, in, in uh, she swam in a, in this final. This Chinese girl. Anyway, after the race, she's being interviewed and she's asked. You know, um, she's being asked things like, you know, what what could you tell us? What did you learn? And she says, you know, even though I stayed, uh, I was very disciplined. Uh, I worked really hard to get here and I'm really happy with my efforts, even though I didn't win a medal. At which point the interviewer sort of interrupts her and says to her, you actually realize you did win a bronze medal. Anyway, the, the, her reaction at that point is gold. It's, it's so good. Her jaw jobs, her eyes light up. Like she is so excited because she realizes, essentially she realizes that there's something greater. Right, and so I think the reason why Paul says this again and again is because if we don't find joy in who God is, in what God has done for us in Jesus, it may suggest that we don't actually grasp how good it is what God has done for us. Right, and so we need to feel joy. As we think about the gospel realities, a shift takes place, a paradigm shift takes place where we find joy. Right, when we think about who God is, the fact that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the fact that He gave everything up for the sake of us, where He humbled Himself to death, even death on a cross. When we think about the fact that He sits as King of kings and Lord of lords, to one day whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. When we think about the realities of heaven and hell and the fact that Jesus saved me from the grasp of hell, even though I deserve that. When we think about to live is Christ, to die is gain. But when we also think about the fact that I am broken and sinful and messed up and can't save myself, it needs to bring us joy. It has to bring us joy. Because it's good news. It's the greatest thing that you could ever hear. And what Paul's saying is rejoice in the Lord. When do we do that? Always. Right? Always rejoice in the Lord. So the second way in which we, we are changed, we, when we see something, when we see Jesus, when we see the gospel, is that we rejoice. What, that, that's the second thing. What's the third thing? Well, have a look at verse 5. The third thing. This is what Paul says in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What's the third thing? Well, the third thing is that we are gentle. Well, sort of. Not really. Actually, it's not gentleness at all. And, and so, so, so what's Paul talking about here in verse 5? Well, here's a fun family fact, because you know I'm all about that. Uh, depending on who your friends are, this will be something that can wow your friends this week. But this word here, gentleness, so not always throughout the Bible, but here especially, this word here, gentleness, is actually a word that we see... Um, sorry, is actually a word that is one of the hardest words to translate in the New Testament. So depending on who your friends are, you know, go and wow them with that. Obviously, you know, not all friends are going to be wowed by that. So don't try it on everyone. But, but this word here, the gentleness, is actually one of the hardest words to translate in the New Testament. So what does Paul mean? Because depending who you're sitting next to, their Bible might say something else. Their Bible might say reasonableness. Their Bible might say gentle spirit. Their Bible might actually stick with gentleness. What's Paul talking about here in verse 5? Well, well, the idea that Paul's getting at here is actually more like selflessness. Right? The, the idea is actually more like selflessness. A guy called D.A. Carson actually suggests that it's, it's, it's kind of self-effacing. Right? That's what he says. So it's kind of this selflessness. Right? So it would have been easier if it was gentleness, but it's not. 
It's, it's actually this idea of selflessness. Gentleness, like it would have been easy because gentleness is easy to fake. right? I can be as gentle as I want but burning up inside. But selflessness is a different beast. Selflessness is harder because, well, really, we live in a world that is all about selfishness. Or we live in a world that's all about me. I don't know if you've realized this, but as we look around, everything is about me. I live for me and, and our world feeds us. this. I mean, I didn't need the world to feed me this, but it does. I don't know if you've noticed this, especially with advertising, right? So, so 50 years ago or 20 or even maybe even 10 years ago, advertising was just kind of, it was for you, but it was kind of for your generalized, you know, uh, your age group or the people in situations kind of like you. But now advertising is so specific. So, so if you Google something, uh, so, so if you Google something, it will come up on your Facebook page or actually all throughout the internet, those specific uh, searches, they are tailored for me. So my Facebook page is filled with Man City jerseys and fishing stuff. Um, but, but it's all about me. The world is all about me. But Paul's saying here, no, no, be evident. Let your selflessness be evident. So a shift has to take place. Right, because our world says it's all about me. The world says, um, the world says to me that my world revolves around me. But there is a paradigm shift that takes place as we see the gospel, as we see Jesus, who is the King above all kings, who, who one day every knee will bow down. A paradigm, a gospel paradigm shift takes place when we realize that the world isn't about me. It doesn't revolve around me. Actually, it kind of revolves around someone else. That's Jesus, right? So that's the shift that takes place. And when we realize that, it affects our how we think, how we feel, how we act in that we are then selfless. So how do we do that? How do we be selfless, right? If that's the shift that takes place, well, Paul says, let your selflessness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So, so Paul there either means um, the Lord is near in the sense that Jesus is returning soon and that should be motivation to kind of motivate us to, to be selfless, knowing that Jesus is coming back. Um, or Jesus, or, or Paul means that Jesus is literally nearby through his spirit, and so that should motivate us. But I, I actually kind of think it's probably a combination of both, right? Jesus is coming back soon, and that he's nearby, and that should motivate us. But whatever Paul's doing here, what he wants us to do is get us thinking about Jesus. Right, and this is something we've seen before. Remember chapter 2, verse 5? Uh, if you've got your Bibles there and want to flick to it, Paul said in chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus. And then goes on to explain what Jesus has done, where he had everything, he gave it up, he became nothing, died on a cross, now sits as the King of Kings. We talked about a few weeks ago how the only way that we are ever going to be able to love people, count others better than ourselves, is if we hold on to Jesus, looking to Jesus. Right? And so I think that's what Paul's doing here. It's kind of reminding us to look to Jesus and be known for our selflessness. Be known for our selflessness. Right? So, so I don't know, how are you going in being known for your selflessness? The, the challenge here is brutal, right? You should really feel this challenge here. Like if I was to ask your friends, your family, your workmates, your school friends, what are you known for, right? Do you think selflessness would even be in the top 10 words that you're known for? I, I don't think I'd even come close to that. I mean, this last week, I realized that as I was hanging out with my non-Christian mates, there are moments where they are more selfless than me. 
That's not how it's supposed to be. As a Christian, as someone who realizes the world doesn't revolve around me, uh, but revolves around Jesus, I, I actually should be selfless, right? The, the challenge is there, right? And if you still don't feel the challenge, then here's some questions to ask about this sort of aspect, right? W- would I, so, so ask these questions to yourself. Would I, um, am I the kind of person in conversations that dominates the conversations? Am I the person that speaks the most in conversations that I have? Right, because selfless people don't dominate conversations. Am I the kind of person that can't wait to speak about my day, my things in conversations? Because selfless people are interested in others. Or maybe on the other hand, am I someone in conversations that doesn't talk? Because selfless people are actually interested in others. They ask lots of questions. Or am I, the, am I kind of the cheapest person in my friendship group? Because selfless people aren't the cheapest person in their friendship group. They are interested. They want to shout. They want to, you know, know think they're thinking about others. So, so the challenge here is brutal, right? As we see God, as we see Jesus, the King of Kings, as we realize that, Jesus, that the world does revolve around him, then the way it needs to affect our lives, how we think, how we feel, how we behave, is actually that we are selfless, that we are people known for being on about others. So that's the third thing. That's the third thing. What's the fourth thing? Well, the fourth thing is that we are prayerful. The fourth thing, the fourth way our lives are changed when we realize Jesus is the King of Kings, the reality of heaven and hell, is actually that we are prayerful. So have a look in your Bibles there. Verse 6, this is what Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The the fourth way that our lives are changed when we see something greater is that we are actually prayerful. Now, Paul says here, do not be anxious about anything. We understand here that there is a tension we've got to ride here, right? Because, because I understand that for some of us, right, anxiety is a biological problem in, in the sense that we have biological dispositions that lead us to anxiety. And we are seeing counselors and doctors to fix those kind of problems, to help us deal with those problems. And and if you're seeing someone, that's great, right? Christian counselors are absolute gold. Let me encourage you to see a counselor. But while that is a real issue, and while I don't think Paul's speaking on that level of anxiety, we still as Christians need to realize that anxiety is actually a problem, right? Because we see all throughout the Bible that Paul says, uh, that Jesus says in the gospels, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Right, Peter says, in Peter he says, don't be anxious about lay your anxieties before God because he cares for you. We see here, Paul says, do not be anxious in anything, right? So we can't just, you know, get rid of the whole idea because it's a biological problem. We actually do need to wrestle with this because God does tell us again and again not to be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and petition, lay your request before God. The paradigm shift that takes place here is as we realize that Jesus is the King of Kings, right? There is no one higher than Jesus. As we realize that he became a human, that he died on a cross, now sits as King. As we realize who God is, what God has done for us. Right? What the shift that takes place here is that we realize we can come before God and lay anything at God's feet. 
knowing that he is the king. He is the one who rules the earth. That's the shift that takes place. And so Paul says here, he says essentially two things in prayer. He says, firstly, bother God. And secondly, God will give you a peace that surpasses understanding and guards your heart. Right. So, so firstly, Paul says, bother God. I love this idea. Right? I love this idea because if we think about it right with our kids. So, so I don't have kids yet, but I can see that this is the case sometimes that for some of us, when our kids come up to us, right, they bother us again and again and again. They bother us. And sometimes it gets too much. Now, I'm not judging you in that moment. But sometimes it gets too much. It just gets too much. And we know that when it comes 8 o'clock, the kids are asleep. We need that hour to just recover because it's all starting again in the morning at 4 o'clock. Right? So, so we, uh, for some of us, um, the majority of us, I would suggest, with kids, when they bother us, sometimes it just gets too much. But with God, it's different. God's not like us. In fact, we get this other idea. God says, bother me. Right? He says, bother me over and over again. Bother me. Come to me. Right? Paul says, in everything, by prayer and petition, bother God. I love this idea. Right? He says, well, what are your anxieties? Are you worried about the weather? Bother God. Are you worried about something far more serious than the weather? Bother God. Right? Come to God. Lay your anxieties before God because he cares for you. He loves you. Jesus died for you. So come to him. Lay it. He's got your back. He loves you. He wants to care for you. He wants to take your anxieties. He wants to take your burdens. Paul says in everything, bother God. But secondly, we hear that he says God will answer us. Maybe not in the, maybe not in the way we want, but he will give us a peace that surpasses understanding and guards our heart. As we come to God, laying our anxieties, when we go, man, I don't have control of this. And it scares me. I don't have control of this. And it scares me. As we come to God and lay it at God's feet, having seen the good news of Jesus, having seen that he's died for me now, sits as king. As we come saying, I'm not in control, but you are God. Something beautiful happens there. God gives us a peace in that moment that says, I got this. God says, I've got this. And he gives us a peace which goes past understanding. Right, which goes past, it's a peace where you know, you're know you told you've got two to six months to live and yet you can have a peace there knowing that God's got you. It's a, it's a peace where people are on the front line for their faith, fa- uh, facing death any day and yet they can know that God's got them. It's a peace that goes past understanding and guards our heart. And so the fourth shift that takes place, the fourth change that takes place as we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that we're actually prayerful knowing that God loves me, he's got my back, and so we can't bother our God who cares about us. That's the the fourth change that takes place. Now, I understand that at this point, um, we could stop, right? There's four challenges, united, joyful, selfless, prayerful. We could stop there because that is enough. But unfortunately today, we have to finish this series. So we've got to keep going. We've got to go. And Paul's got three more. But don't worry if you're overwhelmed at this point. The last three are quicker than the previous four. We'll move through them fairly quickly. They're still challenging, right? And still we need to feel the weight of this because uh, when we see the gospel, it does change our whole lives. So let's keep going. What's the fifth way that we are changed? The fifth way that we are changed when we see something greater is actually that we just think about something greater. We think about something greater. So have a look in your Bibles there at verse 8. Finally, brothers, 
whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The fifth way that our lives are changed when we see the gospel, when we see Jesus clearly, when we see the realities of heaven and hell, is that we actually, what Paul says here, we actually think about these things. We think about the gospel. We think about the realities of heaven and hell. We think about something greater. That's all Paul's saying. Now, now I don't know if you've noticed this, but when it comes to our thoughts, we don't necessarily put our thoughts in our brain. Here's what I mean, right? Like our uh, throughout life, it's external things that put thoughts in our mind. So it's our family pressures, it's work pressures, it's school pressures, it's um, kids pressures. These things in our life just come to our mind. Sometimes we just drift into thinking about our hobbies, but but we just think about things. We don't we don't put our thoughts there; they're just there. Sometimes, if you're like me too, you, you go throughout you know the afternoon where you haven't thought about anything, and then all of a sudden you're exhausted. You go to bed. You close your eyes and then bang, you, you start thinking about something. You just start thinking about, I, I swear, if chess or a game like that, a strategy game was um, a game that we played when we were asleep with our eyes closed, I would, I would be great at that game because when I close my eyes at night, I just think. Right? The, the reality is throughout life is that we don't necessarily put our thoughts there. They are just put there from things going on around us. But there is a shift that takes place, a shift that needs to take place here. When we realize that there is more going on than what's going on in front of us. Right? And we've talked about this in this series. When we realize there is more going on than what's going on in front of us. When we realize there's a reality of heaven and hell. When we realize that Jesus is the king to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that he's Lord. When we realize all that he went through to die on the cross for us. What Paul's saying, that the shift that takes place here is that we actually fight to think about greater things. We're not just okay with thinking about things in front of us. Right now, now this is, the, I, I do think this is common sense because if we think about it in our lives, if we thought about it, yeah, we know that Jesus died for us, but day to day, if we don't actively fight to think about the gospel, to think about something greater, we just don't do it, right? We are too busy, Satan is too clever, and we are too sinful. It just doesn't happen. You ever gone through a day where you get to the end of the day and just think, man, I didn't even think about reading my Bible today. That happens to me, happened to me yesterday, where you just get to the end of the day and go, I didn't even think about thinking about something greater right but Paul's saying here the shift that takes place Paul's saying here no no fight for something fight to think about something greater you know it so fight to think about something greater and so we we have to fight we have to fight to think about the realities of heaven and hell we have to fight to think about Jesus him dying on the cross him rising again him giving everything up to save us. We have to think about the reality that he is sitting as king. We have to fight for that. We have to fight to read our Bibles. We have to fight to pray. We have to fight to do this. We have to fight to do this because if we don't, it just won't happen. So practically, how do we do that? Well, well, practically, I mean, the way it looks like in my life, I have to fight in the mornings to read my Bible. 
in the morning, I, I've got a time set aside because if I don't fight for that, if I don't have that time, it's just not going to happen. I've got to fight to pray, right? It, it might mean for us in our house, it might mean uh, on our mirror, we write something on our mirror so that we just remember to think about something greater. It might mean in the shower, there's something that reminds us to think about something greater. It might mean in the car, we listen to talks or we listen to music that stirs us to think about the gospel, to think about the good news of Jesus, to think about something greater. We have to fight to do it because if we don't, then we'll only ever think about what's in front of us because that, well, well, that's what's in front of us. We, we have to fight to think about something greater. That's the fifth way that we uh, are affected when we see something greater, when we see the gospel. What's the sixth way that we are changed when we see the good news of Jesus? The sixth way that we are changed is that we are able to be content. The sixth way that we are changed is that we're able to be content. Verse 10, have a look. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The sixth way that our lives are changed when we see something greater it is actually that we are able to be content. Unfortunately for us, it's not verse 13, right? It's not literally that I can do anything that I want because Jesus Christ gives me superhuman strength. Right? I feel like this verse has to be one of the most misquoted verse, out of context verse of all time. I feel like it gets its most airtime on Facebook uh, gym pages, right? On Christian Facebook gym pages, you know, where they go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why I'm trying to lift right now 400 kilograms on this. Uh, it, it does make you wonder how many injuries have come from people misquoting this, thinking that they can go to the gym and lift whatever they want because Jesus will give them strength. Unfortunately, though, that's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about here is contentment, right? Contentment. Now, now we've got to realize that Paul isn't, you know, living it up in the city, driving around in a beamer. This is a guy who has lost everything in jail right now. He's got nothing left. And yet, yet here he is with nothing going, no, I, I know the secret to being content. I know the secret to being content. And what Paul essentially says here is there are two things, two reasons why he can be content, which we, we see this throughout the series. It's a shift that takes place. It's a gospel paradigm shift that takes place. And the two things are this. The, the first thing is Paul knows that God loves him and cares about him. And, and so God has his back. Whatever situation, God will help him get through it. The second shift that takes place is that he realizes in Jesus, he has someone more valuable than anything else in life, right? And so, so Paul can go, you know what? Even if I am hungry, even if I am in one, and if you think about Paul's life, this is true. Like even if I am shipwrecked, I know God's got my back. I know God loves me. He gave up his son for me. He gave up Jesus for me. He, he's going to be looking after me. He's going to be with me. I know that he's got my back. But the second thing is Paul realizes even if he loses everything, he still has Christ and Jesus, as we saw two weeks ago. Was it two weeks ago? Yeah, it was two, two weeks ago. Jesus, as Paul has Christ, 
Jesus is far more valuable than anything else. He could lose everything and if he still has Jesus, he knows he has everything he needs, right? Whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's his own life, he knows that if he has Jesus, he has abundantly more than anything he could want and exactly what he needs. And so as we see the gospel, as we see Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as we think about the reality of heaven and hell, the question we've got to ask is, are we content? Are we content knowing that God has my back and knowing that in Jesus I have everything I need and abundantly more than what I want? Do, do, are we content? And so, so the challenge there for us to think through is, am I constantly chasing after other things? Am I looking at what other people have and going, man, I wish I had that because in Christ we can be content. In Christ we can be content. So, so that's the sixth challenge. What's the seventh one? Let's finish this book off. The seventh challenge is that we live lives of thankfulness. As we see Jesus, all that he has done for us, we respond by living lives of thankfulness. Have a look at what Paul says there as he closes off this book. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings. Everyone is greeting each other, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The seventh way, when we see who God is and what God's done for us, the seventh way it affects us, changes the way we think and feel and act, is actually that we live lives of thankfulness. Now, we, we see this here in the Philippians and we see it in Paul. First of all, the Philippians, they're giving Paul money because they are thankful for what he did for them. Right? Their, their thankfulness actually flows into their wallets and so they give money. Even when Paul's at another church, they're giving him money in another state. They're, they're giving him money. They are so thankful. They are living lives of thankfulness that they're giving him money. But we also see this in Paul here. Paul, with his words, are thankful to the Philippians for, for helping him, for encouraging him to keep serving Jesus. And so he thanks them and says, I am sure that God will meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. Paul, too, is thankful. And so, so the question as we finish up this series it is the challenge for us is as we see all that God has done for us in Jesus, all that he's done for us in Jesus, are, are we living lives of thankfulness? Not just to God, but also to others who have helped us see Jesus and encourage us to keep serving Jesus. And so it might be today that we actually send someone a text or, or call someone up or just thank someone for helping us trust Jesus. Because if we see all that God has done for us, we, we will live lives of thankfulness. Thankful for who God is, for what he's done, and for the way that he has helped us to keep trusting in Jesus. Why? Well, well, ultimately, it's because our paradigm has shifted and we see something greater. 
right? Can you see how in all of these things, none of them we will achieve if we just work harder. All of them we only ever achieve if we keep looking to something greater. If we keep looking to the gospel realities we've seen in Jesus, right? The realities that the King of Kings laid everything down, died on a cross, rose again, and now sits as King, as the King of Kings. These things will only happen as we reflect on the realities of heaven and hell, as we think of the realities that to live is Christ, to die is gain. As we see this, it will change the way we think and feel and behave. Not the other way around. If we do these things, it won't help us necessarily see things better. But as we see these greater things, the paradigm shifts so that we think and feel and behave differently. And so as we come to the end of this series that we call the part of something greater, let's remember, let's think about the something greater. Let's think about these realities we've seen again and again and again in this series. Let's let these truths of the gospel The truth that Jesus died, rose, saved me from what I deserve, sits as king, the realities of heaven and hell. Let's let these truths sink into our hearts so deeply that it bleeds into our lives and it changes the way we think, the way we feel and the way we behave. Let's pray. God, we are grateful and thankful that you throughout this series, as we've seen throughout this series, have done great things to save us from what we deserve. Lord, we praise you for saving us from destruction. We praise you for what you did in Jesus, where he gave it all up, died on a cross, rose again, sits as king. We praise you for giving us the hope of something greater, of a reality of heaven. We praise you for this, Lord. And we ask that as we think about this, that as we go into our weeks and into the rest of our lives, these truths would would sink into our hearts and into our minds so that we live and feel and behave differently because of all you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.